Hey, and welcome to our guest this week, Pastor Amanda Lawton. Say hi, Amanda. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. So I want to give you a little background about how I know Amanda. For those of you who are listening, many of you are in Maryland and go to Crossroads. Uh, Amanda and I worked together in Maine. She was my youth pastor there. And uh, now she works on staff with someone many of you would know, Pastor A.J. Vias. Yep. So there's a lot of uh, strange interconnection between our two churches in South Portland, Maine and Crossroads here in Maryland. In fact, Amanda, uh, Amanda was just ordained by uh, Pastor or Dr. Carlos Sundberg, who was in Maine one Sunday and then on, in our church the next Sunday. Did you know this, Amanda? I did. Yeah, and that so, was pretty exciting. Yeah, super exciting. And yeah. uh, just it just amazes me sometimes how many connections God continues to sow between these two churches. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I've known I've known Amanda for quite a long time now, and and got to work with her. And um, what I know about Amanda is that she's a, a vibrant personality with a with a wild and interesting story. And so in this week of Thanksgiving, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to her and let her tell her story a little bit, and talk a little bit about the way that God works in people's lives. Are you cool with that, Amanda? I'm very cool with that. All right, great. So uh, you are from Maine. You weren't brought to Maine to pastor. You are a Mainer. You are right. I was born and raised in Portland, Maine. And now I live and am raising my family in South Portland, Maine, just a stone's throw away. So you've made it all of three miles in your life. I made it three miles. (laughs) (laughs) But the story, of course, goes much further than that. And so uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, about what your dad did and, and your uh, your upbringing? I mean, you don't have to go into great detail, but just give us a little picture of what it's like in, in Portland, Maine. Yeah, um, so my my dad and my grandfather um, were Assemblies or are Assemblies of God pastors. They uh, ra- I was raised in the Assemblies of God there in Portland, Maine, um, and they he pastored my my entire upbringing. We were at the same church. Um, it was a small church in Portland, um, pretty much the same congregation. So it was very supportive. People who watched me grow from a kindergartner all the way up to I had my wedding in the backyard at the church. Um, went off to college and then came back and served um, in children's ministry there um, at the church after where, school. Where'd you go to college and what did you study? Um, I went to college at Central Bible College in, um, excuse me, South Portland. Uh, Springfield, right? Springfield, Missouri, um, <laughs> halfway across the country. My parents were not super pleased that I was moving so far away, um, but I went to CBC. I met my husband there. Um, we were both studying to be missionaries uh, there in Missouri and working on being uh, credentialed and going into missions with the Assemblies of God. And uh, and Aaron, Aaron is your husband. Uh, I, of course, I love Aaron. Uh, Aaron. I do too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron has a different personality than you, right? So, uh, so Aaron, does. Aaron is highly analytical. He's super intelligent. He is good yeah. at articulating ideas. And yeah. so his his goal wasn't so much pastoral ministry as teaching ministry, right? Correct. He is a five on the Enneagram. He is a strong five, and he wanted to be a professor um, of um, Greek and Hebrew and New Testament, did his master's degree um, in theology and studying and could, could speak and read and write 
um, Greek and Hebrew, which is not something that I can do. It's not in my skill set. <laughs> it's always fun to preach in front of Aaron because Aaron, Aaron <laughs> was not above sending a text in the middle of the sermon that you find at the end of it that says something like, did you, did you consider what Irenaeus thought about the fourth verse in that chapter? Like, what, huh? No, I did. I didn't think of that. No, that's a good. <laughs> that is, that is highly correct. And it's true, but, but like, you have to understand, I'm not making fun of Aaron. I love this about Aaron. <laughs> yes. He's very, he can look at a sermon, hear a sermon, um, and very quickly pick out um, where people got their resources their thought process, where they're going, you know, with the idea um, in the sermon, uh, which is really helpful to me uh, when I do preach um, on occasion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I do remember one time, without mentioning what what book I had read or what what ideas I'd taken from there, he sends me a text again. I think it was in the middle of a sermon that I found after the sermon. It said, "Oh, you've been reading uh, Duhigg's book on uh, the power of habit." Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes, I was. <laughs> He's like the program that that cites you and sees if you're plagiarizing. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you guys, you guys go. You meet in school in Missouri. And you have these dreams of uh, being uh, ministers and, and in the missions field, right? Yes. Yeah, we wanted to um, go into missions, um, specifically in Eastern Europe. We had some friends who were missionaries there, and so we that was our goal. We were working toward that we ended up moving back to Maine to pay off some debt to be able to to go into missions and do that work that we felt very called to right and and I'm I'm not always clear at how the assembly of god church works cuz every church has like slightly different processes mm -hmm. but um you guys were working in your dad's church in order to hit some qualifications of like ordination and such as well right Yes, part of um, being ordained with the Assemblies of God is having two years of ministry experience under another, like under a ordained pastor. And so we had moved back home, we were saving money, we were uh, working in their church, um, getting experience preaching um, regularly for their Sunday night services and helping, kind of helping my dad at their, their church. He's the only pastor on staff. And so just being a help to him, whatever that looked like, if it was cleaning the church or preaching or filling in so he could go visit family. Like we did, we did it all at that little church. That's awesome. Yeah. And so along comes a question, right? Are we going to have a family? And, yes. um, and I guess, I guess um, it's not, it's not normally the sort of thing where people think, you know what I think I'm going to do is have my first child in Eastern Europe. We'll see what kind of hospital we find there. Right. Right. And yeah. so you guys have a child here in uh, Portland, Maine, because because if there's anything I learned pastoring in Maine is that if you're from Maine, you better have your babies in Maine. Yes. So they can say that they're also from Maine. Yeah, just absolutely. Just in case if they live in Maine as an adult. <laughs> I, I was from I was from a town 100 miles south of Maine. And I was told all of the time for five years pastoring in Maine <laughs> that I was from away. Yes. You're not from around here. Yeah. And so, so of course you have your baby in Maine. Of course you do, because you don't want to yes. put her through that sort of torture and going yeah. back home. And so, um, wh what year was that? And um, yeah, in two thousand and nine, she was born um, on April Fool's Day, which was an interesting choice of birthday. Uh, yeah. 
kind of reminds me of I have a I have a friend. In fact, my college roommate was born on September 11th, was which was a perfectly oh, reasonable birthday to have right. until he was 20. <laughs> until it wasn't. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, April April Fool's Day, and so you have her uh, in uh, 2009, which means she's a beautiful middle school girl now. Yes, but, she is. Yeah. She uh, was perfectly healthy. Um, I was perfectly healthy when I had her, and things got a little crazy after she was, she was five days old, and I woke up to feed her and had um, the strong chest pain, and ended up going into the emergency room and finding out I was having um, a severe heart attack and ended up in surgery and ended up, they couldn't repair the part of my heart that was um, having the issue. And so I was put on a um, heart pump that was keeping me alive. And so then I was tethered to this machine that was pumping the device that was in my chest. And you were at this point in your 20s. Yes, I was 25. 25, 25. years old. No yeah. history of heart disease. No. You've just gone through all of the trauma of carrying a baby, which like yeah. you have to be pretty healthy to do. Yes. Yeah, perfectly healthy. Never had heart issues. Never had um, really any major. I've had a lot of broken bones, but I've never had major, major health issues. Yeah, and you're, you're a little klutzy, but, but I, yeah, yeah, healthy. Yeah, I like your body protects your heart when you fall. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. So, so twenty five years old, you've got a five dear day old baby. Yes. And now, you have a diagnosis of a heart attack and one that's not easily solved in spite of yes. your age. Yes, and they once I came out of surgery and um, after a few days, you know, was healing and. Um, able to to speak to the doctors and understand what was going on. Um, I learned that the problem with my heart was so severe um, that they, the the heart pump that I had was just a bridge to get me uh, to a heart transplant. So we had to begin kind of that process of, of testing and interviews and all of this with the doctors and the team um, in Boston because Maine does not have um, a hospital with a heart transplant program. So I ended up needing to coordinate with the team in Boston uh, to be listed for a heart transplant and then spent four months on this pump waiting for the heart transplant with a newborn baby. With a newborn baby. Yes. And and for people who haven't been around a transplant before, you, you may have watched like a, a hospital TV show like Grey's Anatomy or ER back in the day, and yes. what happens is some trauma comes in, and they say, "Well, we've got we've got a heart in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's put it on a helicopter." It's not that easy, is it? No, no. There's a lot of planning and coordinating that goes into it. There's a lot of testing and matching that has to happen so that your body does not reject the organ, and so it's a very intricate process. And there's a a wait list, so you go on the on the transplant list and depending on your blood type, depending on uh, a lot of different things that they're testing, someone else who's been on the list for a shorter amount of time than you could get their heart before you. So it's a little bit uh, nerve wracking that you're, you're waiting and you don't know how long that's gonna be. So you're just hoping that 
the heart pump keeps working until they can do the can do the yeah. transplant. Yeah. yeah. Which is a whole lot of of trauma, but there's also like emotional toll in something like this, right? Like your yeah. husband is caught between a newborn and a wife that is being supported to live. Yes. I, I mean, those words come out of my mouth and I can't even imagine. Yeah. Your, your baby is doing all the things that babies do from day to day, right? They're new every day at that age. Yes. And meanwhile, you're fighting for your life. This was never the plan, right? No, this was not the plan. I, I never anticipated having a major health issue like this that would affect the way that I raised my daughter, um, that would affect you know, my relationship with my husband and my relationship with my family and with my church and with my community. Um, at this time, I was working at a daycare in Scarborough. And when I got sick, everybody had just been celebrating with me that I had had Alethea, that I had the baby. And then suddenly there's this this big trauma and I was was suddenly completely helpless and in need. And so um, my sister flew out from Missouri and she helped organize all of, all of the people in my village uh, who wanted to help. And so she helped organize people who would bring meals to the house for my family, people who would come to take care of the baby at night so that Aaron could sleep, um, people who would come and collect their laundry and take their laundry, do their laundry, um, people who would come and, and visit me in the hospital and bring me things to do because I was stuck in the hospital. And it was it was such a outpouring of love um, from from my work and from the church and friends and family. It was overwhelming, the amount of work. And the um, for me to be able to go home while I was waiting for the transplant, there was a lot of work that had to be done on my parents' house as far as um, electrical work because of the device that I had, I had to uh, be plugged in when I wasn't walking around and using battery power. It had to be plugged in and all of those outlets had to be grounded. And so someone came in and helped rewire so that I could, I wouldn't just be stuck in my bedroom, but I could move around the house and plug in in different places. and people came and converted rooms in my parents' house to a nursery and another bedroom. So it just, all of the different little ways that people, you could even imagine that someone could help, um, they were able to, to be part of that and part of my story. And that's really incredible. It's really incredible. It's, it's really also incredible. one of those stories that uh, it's really easy to tell 11 years later about how amazing everyone in your life is. And yet yes. in the, in the real bottom of that story. Like it's it's all grief and it's all pain. Yeah. And as pastors, you and I have known so many people who are in the middle of the grief and the pain. Yeah. It's so hard to to tell them or to help them see that this can turn upside down. But mm -hmm. sometimes sitting back 11 years later and telling traumatic stories like this is helpful because it's a reminder. Yes. That, like you're surrounded by good, even in the midst of the worst, right? Yes, even though even though I felt at that most desperate, most in need, you know, time and I'm crying out to God, but also needing, actually needing support of other people um, and being able to say, 
I can't do this and I need help. Um, and even when I couldn't say it because I was so sick, um, that there were people in my life who were willing to, willing to step in, um, and be a part. And it's served, going through that trauma has served me well in, as you said, in pastoring and helping people walk through super difficult and dark times. And when you're 25, you don't imagine that you're going to be faced with death and faced with, um, even though at those exact moments of, you know, being so sick and going into surgery that I didn't know, I wasn't aware of how serious things were, that coming out on the other side of it, and they said, you know, you had a 20% chance to live that day that you had the heart attack. And the doctors having to say that to my family and thinking about them having to process, to process that, and then putting myself in their shoes of how would I feel? How did that make them feel? Um, that to come out on the other side of it, we're all super grateful. We're thankful for every day that we have and it changes your perspective um, on how you, how you go about your day, how you minister and treat other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 20% when it comes to your life sounds like 0%, right? <laughs> it does. It really does. My family's like, well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, no, they, they were great. They, I have some um, amazing prayer warriors in my life who got on their knees that day um, and prayed. And it's interesting and kind of cool uh, with Facebook and social media. And at that time, Facebook was the social media that, you know, when my, my family um, or a friend posted on Facebook that I was, what was going on and asking people to pray. And we just had this outpouring of messages coming in where friends of ours who we had gone to school with who now were you know missionaries in Africa and there's this African tribe praying for me and you know the youth group in Washington state is praying and just all over the world um, people communicating that we're praying there's people praying and just seeing that that outpouring even even from like a social media or in this kind of digital way um, of being so closely connected um, through prayer, through God is Amazing. incredible. Amazing. Yeah. So let's fast forward a couple of years. You, you yeah. get healthy, you, you come back home, uh, you get going in life, you actually go back to your job. You're working at your yes. daycare again in Scarborough. Yep. Um, I met you in 2013. I was in Maine from 2013 to 2018. <laughs> And so by that point, um, you and Aaron had made some shifts in life, uh, both in regards to ministry, but also which church you were attending. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it was amazing to have the support from my parents' church in Portland. Um, however, going through such a trauma with people who basically helped raise me, it was difficult to then be seen in that 
in that church as a pastor. And it's similar to when Jesus went back to his hometown and he had a hard time ministering in his hometown um, in that, that situation. And so I felt like there were, um, would be more opportunity to serve in, in, another, in another church. And so um, Aaron and I moved on from um, my parents' church and kind of looked and searched for a church in the area and being, being kind of a small area, there are not a lot of um, Assemblies of God churches close to home with a two-year-old to uh, attend regularly. And so we ended up visiting the South Portland Church of the Nazarene one Sunday, and it happened to be their missions Sunday. So we kind of got to hear the heart of the church of how, how much they um, pour out into missions and that they care about their missionaries. And that really stole our hearts when, yeah. we, when we sat in that service. Yeah, it makes so. perfect sense. Yeah. So you were there... Um, shortly, uh, probably two years before I came on the scene as pastor. Yeah. And um, you and I are just a couple years apart and you got along well with my wife. And so, uh, and of course I, I love Aaron. And so uh, we got along really, really well and you were a layperson in the church. And, and I immediately like started learning these stories about you and I was blown away by your perseverance and faith and all, all of these sort of things. And so, you know, I start trying to move you into leadership positions. It wasn't too long that I was there before you were our NYI president. For those who don't know, that means Nazarene Youth International. And so that meant you were on the church board with me. And um, and uh, then then we hired you away from the other daycare to work into our daycare in the church at our desk. And um, that, was a, that was a great fit for us and for you. And um, you're just like, you're just healthy. You look great. You're doing great. Yeah. Everything seems to be progressing in the same direction. And we had a, a youth pastor opening in the church and you and I were, were the search team. It was me. Yeah. It was you. We did yeah. it together. And yeah. um, we, I remember it like this. We had a series of really good candidates mm-hmm. who were qualified and interesting. And you and I, neither of us quite got the fit that it was feeling that it was God's fit for us in our church yeah. with these people. And, and um, man, they've gone on to do really interesting things. The people who came through, like really, they're really good pastors doing really interesting things. And um, so, but for some reason, you and I just couldn't wrap our hearts around the fact that we thought this was what God wanted for our congregation. And so I remember one day you send me a text message. I remember that it was a text message because I couldn't believe that you just texted this to me because it was so, it was so heavy. Do you remember what you texted to me? I did. I think I said, would you ever consider me for this youth pastor position? Yes. And do you remember what, what I said to you, why I did, why I had not considered you? That I don't remember exactly what you said. I said that I was afraid since, since you had had this heart transplant, that the stress of pastoring, that if I, if I hired you, I was going to kill you. Yes. You didn't want to be responsible. I I did not want to be (laughs) responsible for that. Too afraid of my husband. Yes. <laughs> my fierce, fiercely protective husband. Yeah, that, that's exactly, no, true. I laugh, exactly what I was afraid of. I was, yeah. I was just terrified. So, 
so even even um you know like if i could just be transparent here even even i was treating you with kids glove right you're telling me i'm up for this and on the other hand just knowing that the emotion ever happens there would be some position for me yeah yeah if i couldn't keep up with the youth i could answer the phone or do (laughs) (laughs) something for me to do (laughs) but 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 eventually we we come to an agreement that that you're that you're capable of the work yes. that um that you'll be fine you convinced me you'd be fine um i, I probably talked to your husband i don't remember that and checked to make sure he was okay because <laughs> uh and and so we came to an agreement and the the church board was excited and everyone felt like it was right and so you became our full-time youth pastor he did he did it was very exciting it was very, it was very exciting. It was really fun. It was really fun to work with you as well. But even in that time, um, so, so now we're getting to be six, seven, eight years after heart transplant. Yes. And, uh, and you're telling me that there is this side conversation that you were given by your surgeons that someday something else might happen as a result of being a heart transplant. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so with the heart transplant, it's, it's a good fix at that time. Uh, it's not necessarily going to last you the rest of your life. There's, um, a lot of medication you have to take and your body goes through a lot of trauma in the, in the surgery of the heart transplant. Um, specifically my kidneys had a hard time when I had the transplant, they uh, took a good hit. And so then at this point, after um, I was hired on staff, I, my kidney function started dropping. And the doctors, when they saw that start happening, they had said, well, it's not atypical for heart transplant patients to eventually need a new kidney because of all the meds you take and the procedures and the tests and all of the, the damage that it does to your kidneys. So I very quickly in 2015, my kidney function started dropping very quickly. And so they started doing testing um, to get me on the kidney transplant list and getting me ready for dialysis just in case and uh, doing, doing all of those preparation things. Um, and then in February of 2016, I had woke, I woke up on a Monday and felt like I was getting like a chest cold and went to the doctor and they thought I had pneumonia and they put me on some, some cough syrup medicine. Then the following, a week later, um, on the Tuesday, I woke up and I was having a really hard time breathing. So I ended up going into the emergency room and the pneumonia that they thought I had was actually another heart attack that I was having and I ended up being life flighted back down to Boston from Portland and uh, put on dialysis at that point. They put some stents um, in my heart. I had two two of the, um, oh, like veins in my heart, two of the arteries in my heart um, were totally blocked. And so they ended up putting some stents in uh, and I, I was found myself once again in that she might not survive place. 
and being sedated for several days because of the uh, my blood oxygen level was so low once they when they finally realized I was having a heart attack that they told my husband that if if I survived if I was going to be able to go home that I was going to have severe mental deficits because of the loss of oxygen and so they kept me sedated for five days because whenever um, they started to lift the sedation and I started to move my oxygen levels would drop again so they were trying to protect my brain and my body as much as my heart as much as possible um, so after five days uh, they lifted the sedation and I, I woke up um, to realize you know all of what had happened and that I was now on dialysis I was because of the the stents that they put in um, I couldn't have the heart the kidney transplant for a year I had to wait at least a year and so found myself the mother of a second grader being told now you go to dialysis 15 hours a week and and try to work and parent and do all of that at the same time. Yeah, I came, I came and visited you during those five days of sedation. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I was prepared. This is, this is really what I remember. I, I, have, um, I have a picture in my mind of you sedated in the bed, but I don't have much memory of that. Probably, yeah. probably intentionally blocked it Locked out it. because <laughs> truly, like, um, I, I think, you know, many of the people listening may not know this, but you know this, like, I dearly love you and think the world of you. And so walking into that room was painful for me, because it, it wasn't just, I don't want to make it seem like I don't feel this way about um, people who go to church with me or the people I pastor, but you're my coworker, you're my friend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was lots of stuff, right? Yeah. My, my, um, my chief memory of that visit was Aaron being nearly catatonic. It was, yeah. it, was, it was impossible to even talk with him. Yeah. And, um, and it's, I, knew, I, I knew this was a serious situation, right? Like they don't life flight people for a call. <laughs> right. But, right. But when I, when I sat with Aaron and I saw the pain that Aaron was in and the fear that Aaron has, I was like, yeah. my goodness, this is, this is desperate. Yeah. And again, you're like 32 at this point, right? Yes. 32 yeah. year olds don't have this story. No, no. I have a lot of people I know who are in their, you know, 60s and 70s. And they're, you know, they'll tell me you've never, they've not gone through something like this and something like this with their spouse. Um, and the going through all of this at such a young age um, and with my husband that um, our relationship feels closer than a lot of other marriages that I see that have been someone who's been married for, you know, 40 years. Yeah. And that not going through something like this, not that everybody has to go through something like this, but when you do, it changes you as a person and it changes your relationship in, uh, yeah. That is the, that is the beauty of, of yeah. conflict and trauma and hurt is like in the, like no one wants it, right? No. But, but yet, no. like our our personality and our principles and our our love is strengthened through the hard times. Yes, yes, it one hundred percent is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, so then I have this next memory. 
I don't know if you remember this, but every once in a while, just a couple of times, I would come to your dialysis. Yes. And I so there's, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever been in a more cold, sterile, boring room in That's my life worst. than a dialysis room. It's the worst. It smells so bad. Yeah. And you, you were there 15 hours a week. I was. It I, was actually, I think, maybe a little bit longer than 15, depending on how long it takes them to get you on and off the machines. Yeah. Anyway, I spent the majority of my week there. Yeah. Un unbelievable. Yeah. And so, Mark so you, the youngest one there. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's right. That's the other funny thing is you see like, yeah. um, like world war two vets being rolled in and, yes. uh, and, uh, you, you know, ladies who are great grandmas being rolled in and there's a man yes. that's 32 years old. <laughs> right. Like walking in, they're like, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't look right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the year passes and it comes time to, uh, to look at your kidney. And, um, and so, so the next step is kidney transplant. Did that end up happening and how did that go? So part of kidney transplant, there are a lot of people in America who are on that kidney transplant list and waiting. And there's a lot of people who are willing to donate kidneys and this was probably the most humbling part of my entire health story was that I have a friend who at her church who came to me and said, I'm being tested to donate a kidney to you for you. And that really surprised me. Um, I'm going to share his name. I don't know if he cares or not, but Chris LG yeah was tested and he major yeah. in the um main national guard cross yeah. he's just like as like he's the like healthiest person i know yeah but he also he has four children like four small children and he is like hey whatever i can do to help and as though it was just like letting me borrow his jacket like i'm gonna i would do this for you and he ended up not not being a match and um, like not, not being able to do it. And he was so sad that he couldn't do it. And even though he did not donate a kidney to me, the gesture, the willingness, like the connection now that he and I have as friends, I mean, that's gonna last forever yeah. in that. So anyway, um, Chris was tested and then my parents were both tested my dad got pretty far in the um, testing. He and I were almost a match. And then due to my heart transplant, my body had created um, antigens that made my dad not a match for me. And so he was brokenhearted um, about not being able to, to donate a kidney. And, um, and so then I was waiting and waiting. And then in January of 2017, uh, it was either January or February, that uh, my dad's doctors called him and told him that there's a kidney swap program that, um, again, if anybody's ever watched Grey's Anatomy, they did a kidney swap on Grey's Anatomy. And it's, um, if you have someone who's willing to donate a kidney, but they're not a match to you, they could put you in this kind of chain reaction of 
kidney transplant where my dad ended up donating a kidney. It went to someone in upstate New York and that person's, the person that was donating a kidney for them ended up going to someone else. And I ended up getting a kidney from someone who just randomly wanted to donate a kidney. They didn't know anyone and they just went through the process and were a match. Wow. And completed that. So you're telling me there's a legal program where you can treat kidneys like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at a second yes. grade lunch table? Like yes. I don't want my PB and J, but I would love your lunchable. Yes. That's amazing. And you just trade it. <laughs> it just blows my yeah. mind that medical science like has come up with this concept and and, and it's life-saving. I mean, it's a brilliant idea. It's amazing. And they do the, they do the surgeries. Um, the same surgeon who took my dad's kidney out that same day was the same surgeon who put my donated kidney in. So then it makes it feel like and as close to my dad actually giving me his kidney mm -hmm. as we were recovering together and going through that kind of that. It was difficult on our on our support system because our we have the same support system so it was like the same support system trying to take care of two two recovering patients at once but the connection um obviously is my dad we're already connected um but the fact that that he did that for me is overwhelming and yeah amazing yeah, you know good dads in your life, right? You're married to a good dad. Yeah. Uh, dad, yeah. dad, this is what dads do, right? <laughs> yep, this is what dads do. This yeah. is what parents do. Yeah. I would do it for my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So um, so you healed up from that. Um, it, took, it took a while, so I don't want to make it seem like it was like you woke up and you're like, oh, man, I feel great. <laughs> but. <laughs> But, but over over time, I mean, how have you been feeling since all of this? Good. Um, I actually have been feeling really good. I've had um, really limited, since the heart transplant, um, limited rejection. Um, I just recently had my like annual heart checkup and biopsy. And the, the doctor was really impressed with um, all of my labs and all my numbers and my health. He said that I'm looking the best that I've looked kind of all along. And that is really encouraging because there's not a lot of heart transplants only been a thing since the eighties, really where people were surviving. So the longevity of heart, heart transplant isn't really known in a lot of young people. Um, and so we kind of take, Aaron and I take, you know, each, each year that I have with my family that I'm still here um, as a blessing. And so the fact that he said that things, things are looking the best that they have um, is encouraging yeah, for being 11 years out from transplant. That's awesome. Yeah. So 2020 has been a, a terrible year for so many <laughs> people. And yet you more than maybe anyone I know are just filled with highlights this year, which is fascinating. Uh, yeah, but, it's been but, a good, it's weird. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, so So before we started recording, you and I were talking about the challenges of 2020. So I don't want to make it seem like you're a, a, like an unreasonable optimist, but yet um, 
there's been a, a series of things that have sort of like crowned all of this story in 2020 that through all of the chaos, all of the trauma of 2020, um, you came through these two transplants healthy and then started achieving the goals and go calls that God put on your life well before you even thought of heart transplant, right? And here you are. What are some of the things that have happened to you in 2020? Um, so, so after the kidney transplant, I enrolled at NTS at the Nazarene Theological Seminary and started a master's degree um, doing that distance while still working full time. Um, and so I am finishing up my classes there in the next couple of weeks and I'll be um, officially done and graduating. I'll graduate in the spring, but I'll be officially done with a master's degree, which is Woo! amazing. It is like, amazing. So, so much hard work, um, but it's super exciting. And then a few weeks ago, I was ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. So finally completing um, the, the, all of the requirements for that, um, <clears throat> which included ministry experience and education and interviews and a delayed ordination from supposed to happen in the spring and nothing was happening in the spring. And so they made it happen this fall, which is exciting. And I also uh, transitioned from my role at the church. Um, I transitioned out of my role as uh, children and youth in children and youth ministry and um, moved over to the daycare side of the church. And so I'm now the director at the Lighthouse uh, School and Daycare um, in, that's located in South Portland. Church of the Nazarene, and I'm every day using what I've learned in my master's degree program in my work there with the families. Um, my master's is in transformational leadership, and so I'm. It, it's amazing to see um, the ways that I can like directly apply what what I've learned to what I'm doing, and that it's making a difference. Um, and we're seeing it make a difference in the lives of the kids at the daycare, the lives of the parents and the families. Um, and with COVID added on to that, we've, um, at the end of the summer, I really felt impressed to help our community. And I wasn't sure how we were going to help our community. And so we did a, what seemed to me as a really simple thing of offering care during the day for children who, on their digital learning days here in Maine, and that has turned into, I hired on a friend of mine who's a school teacher. So she comes in every day and helps the kids with their work. And then as, as we learned and understood more about the digital work that they were doing, I actually have hired on my dad who is great with computers and children. And so he comes in a couple mornings a week to kind of do some tutoring with the kids and working with them one-on-one. -on -one. And we just heard back from one of the elementary schools. They just did all of their parent-teacher conferences. And so the teachers got to hear and talk to parents about where their children go on their digital learning days for care. And overwhelmingly, the children who come to Lighthouse, who attend that school, their teachers were just saying how um, how great they're doing in their classes, how grateful the teachers and the parents are uh, for what we're providing to the community during this time when um, things are so uncertain and things are so unstable that they're able to, to 
to trust that we're going to help their kids in the simple part get their work done that day but that lowers the stress for their whole family for the rest of the day and with their schoolwork and it's just exciting to yeah, that's, that a, brilliant, that's yeah. a brilliant missional plan using using a, a daycare school that you have inside of the church in order to reach the community. That's amazing. Yeah. And initially when I was like, yes, of course, we will take them all day long. Like I never imagined that it would kind of turn into this, um, making this big of an impact as yeah. it has. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, so originally when, when I talked about uh, telling the story today, uh, I, I mentioned to you that it was Thanksgiving week that we were going to put this out. Yes. And um, I, I've always loved Thanksgiving. I'm, uh, you know, you and I are New Englanders. People <laughs> listening to this aren't New Englanders. I, I don't know. In Maine, was it as bad as it was in Massachusetts, the amount of times you had to go to Plymouth Plantation and see Plymouth Rock and all that stuff on field trips? <laughs> no. No? So as a Massachusetts kid, I, I like every year I went and stood, stood and looked at that rock in the hole in the ground and talked about the pilgrims and all this kind of stuff every stinking year. Yes. That's <laughs> but I love Thanksgiving. I don't know if it's the Massachusetts in me or just my love of food. I don't know. But I, think I love you mean Thanksgiving. it's more the food. Yeah. It's, like, uh, yeah, it's, it's so. the getting together with your family and the food part. That's yeah. the tradition. But you, you talked a whole lot about the people who gathered around your life and how, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't just a story of like your grit and will to make it through hard times, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You talked about the power of prayer and how God blessed and showed up and low odds and all this kind of stuff. Could you talk just a little bit to wrap this up about how, um, how, how trauma and how hurt and how fear and all these things um, lead to a life of thanksgiving? Yeah. The going through, going through all of this, I found myself before, before getting sick that I would want to do things on my own, that I was a strong, independent woman that I could do it and I could make my own way. And going through all of this where I physically could not do for myself and was kind of forced into needing to ask for help to the simplest, like, can you get me a glass of water? That that taught me that the joy that it brings other people to be able to give and to serve. And it's almost completely changed the way that I embrace each day, the way that I move about with other people that giving other people an opportunity um, to serve, to see the need, and with the gifts that God's blessed them, to be able to meet the need. And so my view of ministry, my view of, of my place in, in ministry, has shifted to a place of seeing the strengths in other people, seeing the gifts and the, the way that God has called each of us to give of, of, the, of what we have, to be able to take people and, and match them to those places uh, where there's need. And so I think in, in all of this with, with my health, that it's made me slow down and it's made me appreciate 
what I have right now and appreciate the people around me and how by being more connected with one another, we can be better. We can help more people. We can show people the love of Christ. We can help get the hungry, the food, like the, all of those things that going through this experience has made me realize that I don't have to be that strong, independent woman on my own. That relying on others doesn't make me weak. It doesn't make me codependent or uh, any of that. It it makes us all better to lean, to lean on each other. Yeah. Well, I hope so much that uh, for those who have listened and heard this story, I hope you're, you're touched and blessed by it. I also hope that um, if you're going through a hard time, and I know many of us are going through hard times right now, many of us are struggling. Uh, it's been difficult in so many things. It's been difficult on marriages. It's been difficult on parenting. It's been difficult at work. My hope is that hearing one story of, of one faithful servant of God uh, will remind you of all of the blessings that come along the way that are hard to see in the middle of the struggle. And seeing uh, all of the triumph that's happened in Amanda's life on the other side of, of difficulty that she wouldn't have planned and wouldn't have desired on herself or anyone else, um, mm -hmm. that, that God works through it all. And I hope that it gives you some hope this week to realize that if you're struggling, whatever your struggle is, it may not look like a transplant, uh, but whatever your struggle is, that God is at work through it. And sometimes it takes 11 years to see clearly what God has done through it all. Right, Amanda? It does. Sometimes you have to wait. Wait a little bit, but it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Definitely. Thank you, Amanda, so much for joining us and sharing your story with, with our church here. Um, it's, it's been a real blessing to talk to you and relive these stories with you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I appreciate the chance to share my story and that it's moments like this that I know it wasn't all for not being able to share um, the blessings and the way God's worked. That's it's right. just incredible. Thank you for joining us for Through Life's Crossroads. This has been a ministry of Crossroads Church with Pastor Jake and Pastor Tim. We encourage you to continue to engage with us online throughout the week on Facebook at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene and also on Instagram, Crossroads Naz Church. Thanks for joining us for this episode.